Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to John chapter 15, our sermon text this morning is John 15, verse 26 to chapter 16, verse 11. The uh, chapter divisions in some ways were, were, were not uh, the best, I think, but um, we'll do, make do what we can. Uh, and if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. John 15, verses 26 through chapter 16, verse 11. Give ear to the word of God. It says, uh, Jesus said, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, uh, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to, to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Amen. Um, Well, if you were here last week, last Lord's Day, you know that last Sunday was Ascension Sunday. And so we looked briefly at Psalm 110, which is one of the chief texts of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament, which foretold of the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father. Today, uh, a week after that, is Pentecost Sunday, which was the day in which the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church by the risen and ascended Christ, as we read of in Acts chapter 2. And that also was foretold throughout the Old Testament in texts like Psalm 68, Joel chapter 2, and elsewhere. So both those things, in addition to the, the cross and resurrection of Christ, were foretold and promised throughout the Old Testament. Um, Outside of what we call Pentecostal or charismatic churches, it can be sadly somewhat rare to hear much teaching and preaching about the Holy Spirit. And this should not be the case. It really should not be the case. In his book, uh, one of my favorite books, Christian books, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, he has a chapter on the Trinity. And in in this book, Knowing God, he writes the following. He says, It is startling to see how differently the biblical teaching about the second and third persons of the Trinity, respectively, is treated. The person and work of Christ has have been and remain subjects of constant debate within the church, yet the person and work of the Holy Spirit are largely ignored. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of Christian doctrines. Comparatively few seem interested in it. You know, if you were to look, you know, if you these days it's much easier to find books. You look online. Now, if you whatever, whether you use you know, Amazon or some such thing or go to a Christian bookseller and type in a search looking for books on the Holy Spirit, 
you'll find a few, but you won't find, you know, this endless list of, of, of volumes. There really aren't that many there, and that's a, that's a sad thing uh, to acknowledge. And, and pa- Packer goes on to say the following. He says, It is an extraordinary thing that those who profess to care so much about Christ should know and care so little about the Holy Spirit. It's almost like we're uncomfortable talking about the Holy Spirit, and we certainly shouldn't be. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was actually the result of the ascension of Christ. It is the the cross and resurrection of Christ that purchased the right, so to speak, to have the Holy Spirit as his possession to pour out upon his church. And it was the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God the Father that paved the way for him to send forth the Holy Spirit in above measure upon his church. And, And that is what we're reading about. That is what Christ himself talks about in this text that we're looking at in John's Gospel this morning. There is a uh, recently published and translated into English, rather, book by the Dutch theologian Herman Bobbink. Some of you might know who that is. Um, He has a number of writings that are for, some of them hurt my brain, uh, and I'm supposed to know this stuff. You know, some of them are, his his systematics is like four big fat volumes long. Um, Two of the volumes are on my shelf, and I, you know, it's a little bit of a slog, but it's really good stuff. He has a kind of an intermediary volume, one volume, that's been republished uh, recently. It's kind of made for college students and, and whatnot. But there's a third one he wrote called, in English, it's called A Guidebook for Instruction in the Christian Religion. And it's meant to be kind of a basic introduction uh, to the Christian faith, even the Reformed faith uh, more generally, uh, to like high school age students and above. So it's, it's boiled down to you know, a couple hundred pages. And uh, in that volume, Bobbink writes this. The first work that Christ performs after his ascension on behalf of his church on earth is the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem in Acts 2. This event is an entirely unique fact in history alongside creation and the incarnation. Just as Christ accepted human nature in his conception, never to lay it down again, so the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost chose the church as his temple to dwell in it forever. Sounds like Bobbing rightly has a pretty high estimation of how important Pentecost was and, and is. Uh, the great Puritan theologian Thomas Goodwin called the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, quote, the great promise of the New Testament. Sounds like a pretty big deal. And he goes on to say this, for as Christ's coming was the great promise of the Old Testament, so the sending of the Spirit is entitled the promise of the Father in the new. And he, he cites Luke uh, 24, 2449, where it says, And behold, I, Jesus, send the promise of my Father upon you. And he's talking about set the sending of the Holy Spirit upon his people. In that same chapter of his book on the Holy Spirit, Goodwin compares the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to the coming of Christ in the Incarnation. He equates them in in some ways as being uh, both singularly momentous in in the history of redemption. And we as believers should view them as such and hold them in the highest regard. Both the incarnation, which we think about a lot, especially at Christmas time and elsewhere. But the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, we should think of in like manner. It's a very important day in the history of the church and especially in the history of redemption. Now, 
Um, this is a, not that long of a text, but even this text that we're looking at this morning, uh, I, I have to say, I confess, I won't be able to do justice to every aspect of it. We can't unpack it uh, in all its fullness in one sermon this morning. But we hope to touch on at least a few of the highlights, especially the one found in verse 7, which is the one that caught my eye in the first place, where Jesus tells his disciples, you know, and, and the context is persecution and being killed by those who, who are going to hate you because they hated Jesus. But he tells his disciples it was actually for their, quote, advantage or their benefit that he was going to go away. Imagine the, the, the look on their faces, what it may have been when he's telling them, the people who kill you are going to think they're serving God. By the way, I'm going to go. And what they must have thought when he said such a thing, he didn't say it that way. But what, what must they have thought when he told them that it was for their advantage that he was going to go away? And why is it to our advantage as believers, as, as strange as it may sound to hear that, it's because when he went away in his ascension after his cross and resurrection, he was going to send the helper, or the King James puts it, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth to them. So the first thing we're going to see in our text, I hope us to notice in our text, is the designation of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, as the helper or the comforter and the sending of that helper, the Holy Spirit, to us. The, the, the Greek word that's found there in the text, uh, some of you may have heard this word before, it kind of transliterated into English. Some people actually just do that. Uh, is the paraclete, not, not parakeet like the bird paraclete, which is translated variously in, in a number of different ways. Sometimes in translating uh, words from the Bible, Old and New Testament, when, when we can't figure out how to translate it into a word, into a different language, there is no word that fits it. Sometimes they'll just transliterate the word into English. The word baptize is one of those words. There's no word for baptize in English, so they just said baptize. It's, 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 if you say the word baptize, you practically pronounce the Greek word. Well, the same thing is sometimes true with the word paraclete. They're not sure how to translate it entirely. And there's different ways to look at it. And there's probably not one, any one English word that perfectly suits uh, to render it all the, the fullness of the idea that's in, intended by this word. So it's probably, uh, I know I'm cheating when I do this, but it's probably best to see it as involving both aspects of help as the helper and comfort as the comforter. So I think there's both those things involved. And so whether you have the King James and you say comforter or whether you have New American Standard or ESV and you say helper, both those things are certainly, I think, involved and implied here. Now, the context of our text this morning in John's Gospel is that of bearing witness or bearing testimony to Christ and consequently being persecuted, even martyred, for his sake. That's, that's the context here. In John 15:18, Jesus tells the disciples, if the world hates you, and that if is kind of a rhetorical statement, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In other words, what's the root of that hate for Christians? It's a hate for Christ. Uh, he tells him in verse 20, just a couple of verses later, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. When you think about the fact that this is the context in which Christ speaks to his disciples of himself going away, you can see how distressing such a thing may have been and probably was to them and how they probably would be very conscious, very much so, of their need for help and comfort 
in seeking to bear witness about Christ before a world that hates both him and them. It's not, a, it's not a coincidence or an accident that Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit being sent to comfort and to help them in these things. In fact, in the previous chapter, John 14, verses 15 through 17, you can see how big this section really ends up being. Uh, so it's kind of hard to unpack it all at once. Uh, Jesus actually speaks of sending the Holy Spirit as, quote, another helper. Not just a helper or a comforter, but another Helper, John 14, verses 15 to 16, he tells them this. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Sounds like we just heard that today. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you what? Another helper or another comforter to be with you forever. He's talking about him going away, and he's saying, here's going to come a helper that you're never going to lose uh, on this earth even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So again, we can't, can't say everything that needs to be said in some ways. Uh, we are not saying, and neither is Jesus saying, that the Holy Spirit had never come upon believers in the Old Testament or before the ascension. It's just that the, the, in the New Testament and quoting uh, the Old Testament, it talks about his coming in a sense as being poured out above measure. That he was at work in the Old Testament, but in the, in the New Testament, in the church age, after Christ's ascension, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh uh, and upon his church above measure. So G.I. Packer points out, uh, the Lord Jesus says, another comforter, he says, yes, because Jesus was their original comforter. And the newcomer's task, that's the Holy Spirit, the newcomer's task was to continue this side of his ministry. So Jesus is saying all the things that you're, I'm, I'm, it's implied, the things they relied upon Jesus and his bodily presence with them for, the Holy Spirit would continue to provide after Christ's ascension. The implication in putting it that way, calling the Holy Spirit another comforter, I think, is that the Holy Spirit himself was going to carry on the very work of Christ in and through and for his people in helping them and comforting us. So, you know, we, we often think, oh, I wish we were there back in the day when Jesus was there. Well, you have the same comforter and the same helper in the Holy Spirit that's with you, who is with you forever. When's the last time you thought about what a comfort it is that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit uh, in you as a believer? Where would we begin? You know, I, if, if I were to do it, maybe we'll do this at some point. I was feeling convicted when I was writing this sermon. I thought maybe we should do a series when we're done with Second Timothy, a doctrinal series on the Holy Spirit or something. That wouldn't be a bad thing. But uh, where do you begin? You know, it's kind of overwhelming. When you think of all the texts that deal with the Holy Spirit in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Um, I remember last Sunday looking at the Ascension. The Ascension is one of those doctrines. It's everywhere. You know, what's the old saying? If it was a dog, it would bite you. Or if it was a snake, it would bite you. Like, if you just read through your New Testament and some of the old, it, you'd see him referring to it everywhere. We looked at it yesterday in the men's breakfast. It was in Ephesians 1 and Paul's prayer for the church. And all of a sudden, there it is, the ascension. I'm like, I never even noticed it before. It never jumped off the page. Well, the Holy Spirit, even more so than that, is one of those doctrines. We don't know where to begin. The Holy Spirit is involved in every single aspect of the application of Christ's work of redemption to us who believe. 
It is by the Holy Spirit alone that you and I who believe are born again from death to life, to new life. It is the Holy Spirit who powerfully unites us to Christ by faith. It is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, who seals us for our salvation, Ephesians 1.13. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our heavenly inheritance, Ephesians 1.14. And it's the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, where Paul says, the Holy Spirit seals us unto the day of redemption. Without the Holy Spirit, there are no Christians. And Christ's work would have been in vain. It would have been applied to no one. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures and so guided the apostles into all truth, as we see in our text, or a couple verses after our text, John 16, 13. The Holy Spirit not only inspired the scriptures, the writers of the scriptures, but he illuminates the truth of those same scriptures to the people of God so that you and I can understand rightly the whole counsel of God. He teaches us the word that he inspired. So without the Holy Spirit, we have no Christians. Further than that, without the Holy Spirit, we have no Bible. We have no scriptures. The Holy Spirit leads every believer, every genuine Christian to walk in holiness and to put to death, Paul says, the deeds of the body, Romans 8, 14. He is also called the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And is said, Paul writes, to bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, 15 through 16. If you read as, as, as Rob did, read the whole chapter of Romans 8. The whole chapter, my, my Bible actually puts the heading. The headings aren't inspired. But life in the spirit. The whole chapter is about the Holy Spirit's work for your salvation. Uh, so I, I commend that to you to read. Uh, the Holy Spirit, as Rob mentioned earlier, helps us to pray and even prays or intercedes for us on our behalf. Romans 8, 26 and 27. He says, likewise, Paul writes, the Spirit, different word, but same word in the English, helps us, the helper, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And what's the next verse? Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why do all things work together for good to everyone who loves God and is called according to his purpose? Because the Holy Spirit always lives to intercede for us. His, his intercession is being answered and granted. Now that word where he says in verse 26 there in Romans 8, when Paul says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, that word for help, it has, it's kind of the picture of someone taking a hold of somebody or holding them up. You know, not, not to be too personal, but I just saw uh, Barbara and Leroy and Barbara was helping Leroy out. That's a picture of it holding him up and helping him go where he needed to go. The Holy Spirit helps us up and holds us and upholds us up. What a comfort that is to us that the Holy Spirit does all these things for us. He sustains us and lifts us up in all of our trials and afflictions. No wonder he's called a comforter and a helper as he is sent. Now, uh, the next thing to see in our text is what is the purpose of sending, of Christ sending the helper or the comforter? Perhaps the main thing, after all that we just said, perhaps the main thing 
that the sending forth of the Holy Spirit is intended to help the church with is in our testifying uh, to Christ and being his witnesses on this earth. In a lot of ways, that's the main purpose of sending the Holy Spirit upon the church. John 15, verses 26 and 27, the very first part of our text. Look there again. Jesus says, but when the helper comes, what's he going to do? When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, there's a hint, who proceeds from the Father, what will he do? He, the Holy Spirit, the helper, will bear witness about me, about Christ. And then what does he say? And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit's going to bear witness, and because the Holy Spirit bears witness, the church is going to bear witness. And it's only because of the, the former that the latter can take place. He's called the Spirit of Truth and is said to bear witness about Christ. And the result of the Holy Spirit's bearing witness about Christ is that his disciples also, by the Spirit, bear witness of Christ. Now this is not the same thing, or is this not the same thing, that we see in the opening chapters, chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Acts. Same exact thing, different words, right? Acts 1 verse 4, Jesus before his ascension told the disciples not to leave Jerusalem. Stay here, you know, wait until something happens. Uh, told them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to, quote, wait for the promise of the Father. And in verse 8, what does he say? Acts 1.8, he says, But you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what's the result? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So wait until you receive power from on high. What, uh, where does that power from, from on high come from? The Holy Spirit coming upon the church. And what's the result? Same as in John chapter 15. Uh, they will be his witnesses. All over the world. The worldwide expansion of the gospel and the kingdom of God through the gospel and the preaching of it is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit being poured out on his church. The receiving of power had to come first so the disciples could be Christ's witnesses. The Great Commission, the mission of the church to make disciples of all the nations, is far above our pay grade. We don't even know how to make disciples of Ramona as an individual local church, much less on our own. But it's far above our pay grade. It's so far beyond our ability to, to make disciples of all the nations it's so far above our ability on our own as to be impossible and for all kinds of different reasons. But the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Godhead, enables us to bear witness for Christ powerfully. And what does it say in verse 8 of John 16? He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And when does he do this? As the gospel is being proclaimed. The Holy Spirit works through the word not just in your life and mine as believers, but even in the preaching of the gospel to unbelievers. In his book, Faith and Life, Benjamin B. Warfield, uh, it's called sometimes the Lion of Princeton, terrific, uh, you know, possibly, arguably the greatest American theologian in the history of our country, he writes this, It is because this is the, disp uh, yeah, can't say it. It is because this is the dispensation of the spirit, this age that we live in, that it is a missionary age, and it is because it is the dispensation of the Spirit that missions shall make their triumphant progress until the earth passes at last 
into heaven. It sounds like he might have been post-millennial, but whatever the case may be, he saw the gospel spreading, that it was guaranteed that it was going to make its triumphant progress, the missions, spirit of missions, would make the triumphant progress until the earth passes at last into heaven. And you know, that shouldn't sound like an overstatement to us. Maybe when I read that, maybe you thought, whoa, you know, what's he expecting to have happen? But what do you see happening in the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, you have the gospel, that, that one verse I read earlier in the service, Acts 1.8, when he says, you'll be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's an outline of the book of Acts, and it's an outline of world missions. The gospel starts in Jerusalem, spreads out to the region of Judea where Jerusalem was, all of Samaria, the northern kingdom, so to speak, so all of Israel, northern south kingdoms, and then to what? To the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. And what do you see happening in the book of Acts? 28 chapters sounds long, but it really isn't that long when you think of what it, what it contains. You have the gospel, in, in starting in chapter 2 with the day of Pentecost, the gospel going out to all Jerusalem, 3,000 souls being added to the church in one sermon when Peter preached on that very first Christian sermon uh, on the day of Pentecost. And then at the end of the book of, of Acts, where do you see Paul? In Rome. He had reached with the gospel, according to their way of looking at things, the end of the civilized world, all without all the advantages that we, we so take for granted, phones, internet, airplanes, printed press, all these things that we think are indispensable. They had nothing of that. And yet the gospel spread like wildfire. And converts were made all over the world. Churches were planted all over the world. That's why. Because the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And he's with us forever. He hasn't stopped doing these things. He, he may have, you know, I won't get into you know, signs and wonders and these kinds of things. We don't believe those things are for today. His main ministry is witness through his church. The sending of the Holy Spirit has made this a great missionary age. And so the gospel goes forth with great power unto the salvation of sinners and even the obedience of the nations. That is still the program. It is still what Christ is doing and would have us to do as his people. Well, last but not least, the advantage of the Holy Spirit to the church. All these things Jesus tells us there that his disciples, it's to their advantage that he goes away and sends his spirit. I think sometimes we don't think that way. We think, well, the church could be doing so much more if Jesus were here bodily. And it'll be a great day when he comes back and returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. But it, he says it's to our advantage and we should take him at his word when he says that. Now, it probably seems as baffling to you and I as it did to them when they first heard him say such a thing. And surely they must have thought, you can't help but think, they must have thought to themselves, you know, we don't know, but let's put ourselves in their place. Jesus says, it's to your advantage and benefit that I go away. What would you think? You don't contradict Jesus, but you might be saying to yourself, sure, <laughs> easy for you to say, you know, no, but it, it was easy for him to say because it was true. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, uh, D.A. Carson writes the following. He says, Jesus' valuation of what is for his disciples good, indeed for our good, ought to temper longings for the of the, oh, if only I had been in Galilee when Jesus was their sort, you know, the good old days. That same Jesus insists it is better to be alive now after the coming of the Spirit. Before the triumphant inbreaking of God's saving reign, before the inauguration of the new covenant, 
Millions ignored the claims of the true God. Pentecost transformed that limitation and millions have been brought to happy submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and to growing obedience by the power of the spirit whom he bequeathed. I think that's a, a good way to put it. We might think, oh, if only we were alive back then. And, and Carson would have us say, no, look what Jesus says here. We should be glad and happy we're, in, we're alive now after the outpouring of the Spirit. What a great way to put it. World history over the past 2,000 years, give or take, when compared with the utter darkness of the world previous to it, demonstrates that the power of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit working through that gospel, uh, what it does in transforming the world and bringing the nations to discipleship in Christ. You and I are privileged to live in a great gospel age which is the age of the Holy Spirit. It's for our good. It's for our advantage to be in this age serving God and witnessing to Christ in this world. To use Carson's phrase there, have you been brought to saving faith in Christ, even brought to a happy submission to the Lord Jesus Christ? Has that been the the work of the Spirit in your life, that you are in happy submission to Christ by faith for salvation? If so, how is that the case? It's only because of the power and work of the Holy Spirit within you, raising you from the dead, spiritual death to life, and granting you saving faith. If you have not yet believed on Christ for salvation, turn to Christ and live. And if you do, it will only be the Holy Spirit that works that within you at the end of the day. Of the ascension of Christ and the subsequent sending forth and pouring out of the Holy Spirit, John Calvin, who is often called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. You'd be, you'd be shocked if you read the Institutes how often uh, John Calvin brings up the Holy Spirit throughout. You might be surprised. You might think John Calvin must have been a Pentecostal Presbyterian as well. But he writes this. He says, Thus being received into heaven, he, that's Christ, removed his bodily presence from our sight, not so as to leave without help, Believers who still have to live on earth, but to rule the world with a power even more present than before. Certainly his promise to be with us to the end of the age has been fulfilled by his ascension. We looked at that last week. For as by it his body was lifted above all the heavens, so its power and effectiveness reached far beyond all bounds of heaven and earth. Why is that the case? How is it possible How is it that Christ, having been removed from us bodily to the right hand of the Father, now rules with a power and presence more, uh, more, a power and presence even more present than before? It doesn't feel like he's more present than before, does it, in some ways, because we don't see him. He rules with a power that is more present than before because the Holy Spirit's presence and power is what mediates that. It's the Holy Spirit's presence and power, the Spirit of Christ, which he is called. That is the way the Lord Jesus Christ is present even now and powerfully at work in the church throughout the world. That is the way that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. He's with us always through his Spirit. And that is the way he's with us in the work of making disciples of all the nations. That, that is how Jesus continues to be himself our helper and our comforter by sending us, quote, another helper in the sending forth of the Holy Spirit. Amen.